start off by, by quoting one of the most famous lines in all of Shakespearean literature. It comes from the beginning of the third act, the opening phrase of Hamlet's soliloquy. And of course, you perhaps know what I'm talking about. I think it's probably the most famous of all the lines in, uh, in uh, Shakespearean literature. Hamlet's faced tragedy all around him and he's thinking about it all and he's trying to make sense of it all and he, he contemplates ending his own life. And so with, with skull in hand, he says these words. Let's say them all together. To be or not to be, that is the question. And I know some of you can probably go on. Who can go on? You can, Ryan? Go ahead. No. Tiff Nobler. All right. Well, you went on for two words. That's pretty good. I've not memorized it, so I don't know. I don't know a lot about it. But I do know that line. The Hamlet's just weighing whether it's, whether it's worth it to, to continue to live or whether he should commit suicide. And in his soliloquy, which about, a soliloquy, by the way, is just a, a, a talk to the audience where he is sharing his thoughts. And, and Hamlet weighs the moral legitimacy of suicide in light of the incredible pains of this life. So this life is so painful, can I end it now and escape the pain? And from an entirely humanistic perspective, he reasons that indeed the pains of life are so great that suicide is justifiable, even desirable, to kill oneself so as to escape this pain. However, in the end, Hamlet reasons as he thinks about the afterlife and the uncertainties that are there, and, and in the end, the uncertainties of the afterlife actually outweigh even the moral legitimacy of suicide in this life. And thus, he says, that's the reason why so few commit suicide. It's because of the uncertainties to come. And really, Hamlet's perspective is the, the perspective of, of life and death you have if you're going from a humanistic perspective. The only thing that you have to hope for is that things get better from here. All you have is doubt, and a false hope of something better. This morning, as our time in the Scriptures, we're, we're going to see Paul's soliloquy. Now, Paul isn't really thinking to himself, and, and we as an audience aren't really engaging in what he said, but he is giving us some thoughts just about the same things that Hamlet talked about, about life and death. And we're going to see here Paul talk about his own mortality and, and weigh the benefits of living and dying and we're going to gain a perspective on these things, which is a divine perspective. And especially as Paul is a, is a godly man, he gives us a godly perspective. It's going, to, it's going to be radically different than what Hamlet put forth. Hamlet's soliloquy was, was marked by depression and, and melancholy. And it, his perspective was not filled with hope. Rather, it's filled with uncertainty. And Paul, on the other hand, as he contemplates life and death, he's filled with hope and with joy. He's filled with certainty. And the core of his soliloquy comes in verse 21. Of course, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we'll get to that verse in time. And unlike Hamlet, he's not talking about suicide, but he is talking about his own death. But, but his death would be a, a death by Roman executioners having his head lopped off and fall into a basket. And he's not afraid of death in any way because he knows what awaits him as a believer in Christ. Untold glory with Jesus. But the glories that await him doesn't mean he wants out. You see, by the end of the passage, you even see that 
It just drives him to serve other people and to redeem his time here upon the earth. So if you haven't done so already, Philippians chapter 1. Open your Bibles right there. We're going to begin in verse 19. And our text today is actually going to go just through verse 21. I had, had hoped and planned to go all the way through verse 26, but as I put things together this morning even, I just said, no, I need to stop at verse 21 because I want to do justice to 22 through 26. And, and the riches of verse 21 are, are so great that we need to just pause and reflect upon them. Now before I read, just want us to catch up to speed where we've been. The book of Philippians is a, a thank you note that Paul sent to the church of Philippi for a financial gift that they had sent him to help him during his days of imprisonment. When Paul began writing, like in verse 3, he was filled with thankfulness. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He, and he goes on to tell why he's thankful. And he remembers how they were partners in the Gospel from the, from the very first day until now. Just helping Paul and, and serving him in terms of getting the Gospel message out. And how they, likewise in Philippi, proclaimed the Gospel of Christ and saw the church grew there. And so he was thankful for them and they stirred his heart. That's why he said those things. And in verse 7, he said, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I love you all in Philippi. He knew these people. He cared for them. They weren't just blank faces someplace. No, these were real people, real names, real faces on his heart. And that's why. Because he knew them. And that's why Paul was so thankful and joyful and prayerful for them. Because he remembered them and knew them. And then we see his actual content of his prayer in verse 9. And as I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then after that prayer, Paul goes on to explain his circumstances. And as bad as they looked, actually God was doing some good things through these bad circumstances. Now I want you to know, he starts off in verse 12, realize this, that it's not what it looks like. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. Paul was able to proclaim the Gospel to those in the Roman guards who were assigned to him. They have spread the message throughout the whole Praetorian Guard so that even some of Caesar's household came to faith as well. Chapter 4, verse 22. And those outside of his confinement, as they saw the courage of Paul as he was in prison, were emboldened to preach Jesus. And some were doing so with poor motives, but that didn't bother Paul. Paul said, verse 18 is the key here. He says, what then? Right? Whether they're preaching from false motives or rivalry or envy or strife or from good motives, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. In other words, when Jesus Christ is lifted high, Paul rejoices. Whenever people are called to repent of their sins and, and trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, Paul rejoices. And whenever the Gospels proclaim, Paul rejoices. And though there be some bad motives, and though there be some warning signs in particular ministries, and, and though Paul may warn against some things going on, he still rejoices wherever Christ is proclaimed. Because wherever the Gospel goes forth, people can come to faith in Christ and, and increase the glory of God. They magnify God. Well, that's what we included last week. In this, I rejoice. That's where our hearts need to be, right? We need to rejoice in the Gospel. That's what Paul is doing. He's rejoicing in the Gospel as it went forth. It's the theme of Philippians. And our text this morning actually begins at the end of verse 18, where Paul seemingly re repeats himself, but doesn't really repeat himself. But he says this. He says, yes, and I 
will rejoice. Well, what's happening here is, is that, that the first part of 18, which says, In this I rejoice of Christ is proclaimed. He's, he's talking about everything that's happened. But now the tense changes. And now he says, yes, and I, I will rejoice. Meaning that, that the future things I'm going to rejoice in. He's focusing his attention upon the future. He doesn't know exactly what the future holds. He doesn't know what's exactly going to happen to him. But he knows this. He says, I'm going to rejoice in the future. And verses 19 through 26 are a reflection about Paul's future. Remember, he's in prison, awaiting trial, and things, when he stands for the judge, may turn out well. He may be released. It may turn out bad. He may lose his head. But regardless of what happens, Paul says, in this I will rejoice. Whether by life or by death, he's even going to say. And I say, is this your perspective on life? Can you say today, regardless of what comes upon my life, I will rejoice? Are you ready to follow Paul's example? He had it far worse than any of us had it. And he knew what what may come of his life. And he said, I will rejoice in that day. We're told in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example. Or more precisely even, look at chapter 2, verse 18. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Rejoice with me. Let's be a happy, joyful, rejoicing people. Are you ready to follow Paul's example? Are you ready to follow Paul's counsel? Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. God commands us to rejoice in Him. When things are good... When things are bad, right? Last week we sang, Blessed be your name. When all looks good, when the sun's shining down on me, and when all is it should be, I, I will blessed be your name. But when sour things come, right? When hard things come, I still will say, Blessed be your name. And the only way we can rejoice always is if we catch rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. If you try to rejoice in your circumstances, it's not going to work. Circumstances aren't always joyful, but we can join, rejoice in the gospel, right? We can join, rejoice in God. There's always reason to rejoice there. In fact, I think that's the key of how Paul rejoiced. He rejoiced at the stable thing in his life. It wasn't whether he's in or out of prison. It wasn't whether things are going good or bad or rejected. He rejoiced always that God is the one who conquers. Well, let's read our text here this morning. Beginning again of verse 18. Yes, Paul says, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. 
Well, let's look at my first point, verses 1 and 2. Hope for deliverance. Hope for deliverance. That's what Paul was. He was hoping for deliverance. He was hopeful that he would be delivered from prison. Now, I know he puts this forth in verse 19 (coughs) as a positive assertion. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And I think the reason why he was so confident is because he had his pulse on what was going to happen to him in Rome. He knows he was there on trumped up charges. He he knows that he did nothing wrong. And, And he reflects back to his time in Caesarea with King Agrippa. When he stood before the king, he gave his defense before King Agrippa. Here's what Agrippa's judgment was in Acts 26, 31 and 32. King Agrippa said, This man has done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment. This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Agrippa's perspective, from a Roman perspective, he said, he'd be set free. He hadn't appealed to Caesar, but he appealed to Caesar. And so, I think Paul's got his his finger and his pulse on what's going to happen. The Romans were looking at things perspective. There's no charge that could come against Paul. He was the Teflon man. He was above reproach. He, he, he didn't do anything wrong. And yet, because he appealed to Caesar, there he was awaiting trial. And I'm sure he had a feel what was going to happen to him in the day of court when the secular king in Caesarea or the judge in Rome would, would say the same thing the king in Caesarea did. That he'd done nothing wrong. And surely he thought that would be the case of those in Rome. That's why he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And yet... When it comes to court decisions, you never quite know what's going to happen. Case in point, the Supreme Court of our land, we know a lot about what all nine of those justices believe. We know what they've decided in the past. We know what they have written. We know how they've ruled. And yet there are times when they would surprise us and they would rule maybe differently or take some nuance or or the, the swing judge, I think it's Kennedy, right? It will swing one way or the other. And you don't know exactly which way. And, and Paul is like that. At times we're surprised by how the rules. When it comes to lower courts, this might even happen more where they're not really thinking about things and dealing with their they're kind of in and out. And maybe it's the whim of the judge. Maybe he had something bad to eat in the morning and kind of is grumpy that day. And you, you, never, you never know. And, and even you sense here at... Later, in verses 22 and 23 and 24, he still, you know, is life and death hanging in the balance. And yet again, though, verse 25, he's convinced. And I know that I'm going to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. There's a, there's a confidence that he had that he would be indeed released. And in the text, I see three reasons why he's confident. The first comes in the previous paragraph. Look at this. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. you got to say, what is this? What's he talking about there? I think he's talking about verses 12 through 18. Right? When, when Christ is being proclaimed far and wide, you have most of the brethren being emboldened to preach. You have others who are preaching even from impure motives. You see people coming to faith in Christ in the Praetorian Guard. You see Caesar's household coming to faith. You see the Gospel spreading. And I think that Paul sees this swing of pagan Rome that there is this pocket of people hearing more and more about the sect called Christianity. And though the Romans may not embrace this truth, at least the Gospel's going more and they're hearing more about it. And they're, they're seeing that it's not some fringe way, but they're seeing that it's creating better citizens and harder workers and moral people and joyful people. And there, I think, is becoming a, um, a positive perspective. The reputation of Christ's followers are increasing through Rome's through Rome, and and Paul thinks his chances of release will increase as well. I think that's what he's saying. 
For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. I know that all this spreading of the Gospels is going to help my deliverance. But there are two more reasons. First of all, this is prayer. Through your prayers. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Here it is. Through your prayers. And thirdly, the provision of the Spirit. Let's talk about prayers. Paul believes the prayers of the Philippians are going to be effective. He, he believes that he will be released through their prayers. You know, often, we can have a high view of God. We read the Bible and, and love the things the Bible speaks about, about how God is great. Psalm 135, I know the Lord is great. Whatever The Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and the seas and the deeps. And, and oftentimes, I've heard taught before that, that really when we pray, what, what it does is it changes us rather than moving God. And so it, it really conforms our heart to what God's will is anyway. Have you heard that before? There's truth to that. right? When Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6.10, He said, we should pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy what? Thy will be done. God, we're praying that what You want to have happen happens. Or we read things like Jesus Himself prayed, right? You take this cup from Me, if possible, it all take this cup from Me. And yet, what did He say? Nevertheless, not what I will, but what You will. And we can just even say, look, God's got this plan. We need to pray. We need to come alongside that plan. And, and that's good. And that's a good theology. And that's alright. But that's not what Paul's saying here in verse 19. So, Let's not take our, our big God theology, right, which is right, and push it here. Let's say, you know what, maybe there is another side to prayer that's not caught up in all the, the sovereign grandeur, the mystery of how God's will works with human intermediaries. Let's be reminded afresh that God really listens to our prayers and that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. James 5.16 that Elijah, when he prayed for three and a half years, it wouldn't rain, it didn't rain. When he prayed that it would rain, that it would rain. When he prayed the fire upon the altar to come down, it came down. Let's realize that effective prayers of righteous people can accomplish much. And so, I just say this, are there burdens in your life? Then pray in faith. Trusting that God will hear your prayers and trusting that God will intervene in your difficulties. Here it is. Through your prayers. Because of your prayers. Let's believe that. And I think your prayer life or lack of prayer life demonstrates whether you really believe that or not. So you just say, well, do I really believe that? Well, I just say, how are you praying? That will, that will tell you whether you really believe that God accomplishes much through prayers. Interesting to note here in verse 19 though, let me give you a literal translation of what's happening here in verse 19. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through the prayer of all of you. So, I'm not sure why the numeric standard said prayers. The note there, it does say supplication. It's like there's one supplication of all of you. Here's what I think is happening. I think that Paul isn't talking about all the Philippians going their homes and going... All, all, all abroad to pray all their different prayers for Paul. I think what Paul's talking about is the prayer that's made by all the people of God together. Perhaps that's in the public worship. Paul has a, a mind to that. When the whole assembly is, is together, maybe one man is up front, Darren or Phil or 
Someone else is up front really praying to God and the whole congregation is involved together with that. Or maybe at the prayer meeting, right? When everybody is listening to the prayer and agreeing with that. And I just compel you, encourage you again to enjoin in corporate prayers with Rock Valley Bible Church, whether that's a, a prayer up front or whether it's a prayer meeting. Come to prayer meeting and pray because God will accomplish much through that. Believe that your prayers will accomplish things. Paul believed that. And that's, that's what he says. Do you believe your prayer is effective? Do I believe my prayer is effective? And I say, pray for us in India. I mean, that, um, and know that when, when I'm gone, here in a week and a half, I just, just pray for us. I'm just really feeling that more and more. Just will God really do that? You know, it was interesting. I was really apprehensive about my visa coming through. Uh, Bob Clinton told me just about, you know, he said, don't put down there that you're a pastor because that will be like, bing, 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 red flags um, about you coming to India. Also, um, just in, in India, I think there's some things, I think it's illegal to do much what I'm doing in India, by the way. Um, I think it's illegal there to preach and to teach and evangelize. Um, I'm going over as a tourist. Bob also said it's illegal to build furniture like Darren Weeby will be doing because you're taking work from the locals, so you can't you can't do that. There's there's plenty that's happening there, but we must obey God rather than man. I'm going to serve these people, um, and so if I put down a pastor, it'd be red flags. And someone he said it, it, someone came on a trip before, wrote that down. They had to just go through a bunch of other things, so I didn't put that down. My my heart was a little apprehensive about it, and. Uh, and just this week, I even just hit my knees and just said, God, would you just help? And, and that's right before I purchased tickets. I said, God, would you help? And uh, purchased tickets a couple hours later. I kind of looked, I looked beforehand and it was still kind of in contemplation and uh, purchased tickets. And then afterwards, it was like, OK, it's sent off. And I didn't know it was, it was good at that point. I received a couple of days later that they'd accepted me and everything. And but just some apprehension there. But I really I, by the time I prayed. And checked it within a few hours. Things had all changed for the better. So just God, God helps. Let's, let's pray as if our prayers are effective. Thirdly, we see why our prayers are effective. right? We, we've seen this will turn out for my deliverance. right? All this preaching will turn out as the Gospel becomes more commonplace through your prayers. And thirdly, through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's talking about the power of the Spirit. The power of the, the Holy Spirit. It's how the, the prayers of the Philippians are going to be answered. Not because the prayers intrinsically have a power in themselves, but because they go on the wings of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. And what God does with, does with kings, He can also do with judges. And so let's... Paul trusting that, that God would do that with the judge that he stands before, that the Spirit would come. And I think that Paul found his comfort when standing before the judge. And you will find comfort anytime you're in trouble standing before some official. Just say, you know, God, you're the one that guides the heart, and I just trust 
that you're going to guide the king's heart whatever way you want. Or you're going to guide the judge's heart whatever way you want. Or you're going to guide the police officer's heart whatever way you want. Or you're going to guide some kind of authority however you want and just trust it to God. That will give you great confidence when standing before authority. And as Paul writes this, he's hopeful then of deliverance because of these things. All the preaching of the gospel, the prayers of the saints, and because of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And then verse 20, you can see his hope. That's why I define this point. Hoping for deliverance. He says this, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that is his faith, his, his trusting, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. In other words, Paul, Paul is hopeful that he's not going to be ashamed. He's not going to be shamed as a criminal. But his deeds would be vindicated at the end. That No, he's no criminal. He doesn't deserve death but vindicated fully and entirely that he can continue to preach Christ as he says here, that I'll not be put to shame, right? I'll be vindicated, but that I'll be able to go out with all boldness and and that Christ will be exalted and I can go completely unhindered in my preaching of the Gospel. That's what Paul wants. It was his preaching that landed him in prison and his hope is that he can continue on preaching after prison. And and I'm sure that Paul's kind of thinking back upon what happened to the early apostles. Remember when Peter and John... Healed that lame man, and then were were captured and arrested and stood before the Sanhedrin. And their date with them, they told them, "Don't preach any longer in the name of Christ." And they, Peter and John, said, "Whether it be right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and heard." And that's what they did. They went right out and preached as eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They'd known Jesus in His life. They'd seen him die, they'd seen him placed in the tomb, and they saw him alive after his death. And they said, we're just witnesses. We can't stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. Well, they did that, they preached, and then they got put in prison again. And they gave the testimony, we must obey God rather than man. And again, in order not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, they were flogged and released. And it says in Acts 5.42, every day in the temple from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus the Christ. And that's what Paul's hope is for himself. They wouldn't be shamed, that he wouldn't be silenced. But even I sense here that he's hoping for some freedom. His hope is he'd not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ would even now as always be exalted in my body, that he could preach and proclaim in openness and that he would stand forth God unashamed before God as well. Unashamed being able to speak Christ and all those things. And, and, and here we see him transitioning again to this life or death theme. That Christ would as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Paul knew full well that his death may be near. He said, but whether he lived and died, he wanted to exalt the Lord. And then comes that famous statement, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Leads us to our second point this morning. Not only is Paul hoping for deliverance, but he's ready to die. That's the thrust of verse 21 here. He's ready to die. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Right? Living is on one level, but dying goes up the next level. In some ways, this statement here parallels Hamlet's statement. Shakespeare's Hamlet would say it this way, to be or not to be, that's the question. Paul says, to live as Christ, to die as gain. You can see both that they are, are uh, the subjects of the same, life and death. You can see that they both have infinitives to kind of give them a terseness, a shortness, to be or not to be. 
to live or to die. Right? There's parallels. They're, they're talking about the same thing. And they, they give brevity to the statement. They, they give profundity to their statements. But they diverge because Shakespeare's Hamlet puts it forth as a question, right? To be or not to be, that's the question. And you read a soliloquy and it's never really fully answered because it's still a question about should I kill myself or should I live? Paul puts forth the statement, it's great hope. Dying is better. Shakespeare's Hamlet would say that both options are bad. To be is to be filled with pain and turmoil in this life and not to be is filled with uncertainty. Paul is the exact opposite. He says to live is Christ, right? A life of joy and abundance in the Gospel. And dying is even better. So I trust you can see how opposite these two are. And I think that's the key why Paul says at the end of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. Because you've got two good options. Kids, think about it. If I came to you and I said, okay, do you want candy or do you want ice cream? Ice cream? You want ice cream? Who wants ice cream? You're going to raise your hand? Hey, who wants candy? Raise your hand. Okay. See, they're both good options. And so Paul said, well, if I live, that's a good thing. And if I die, that's a good thing. He says, even later, he says, I, I, I don't know what, what, what to choose. I, I don't know what's going to make no. I, don't, I just don't know. I'm kind of back and forth on this thing, which is, which is better. And I can't wait to look at verses 22 through 26 because I'll just give you a highlight in my message when I get there. <clears throat> he chooses service to others. Like he calls people not to look after their own interests, but look after the interests of others. But I digress. Paul knew if he lived, he experienced Christ. If he died, it would only get better. In fact, when death was imminent in 2 Timothy, this was perhaps, as most people think, during a second Roman imprisonment. Most people think that indeed he did get out and then he was later imprisoned. Uh, in Rome, you just try to trace through things in the other epistles and this makes sense. His death there was imminent. Imminent. He was held in the maritime prison, the, the, the prison which is basically a big hole in the ground, unsanitary, with a door down there that they just take you out and then take you your head off. And it, when that was the case, he says this, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, through 8, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I'm ready to die. He knows not when that door is going to be open to have him go out and lose his head. But he says this, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. Therefore, I'm not ashamed because I, I've stood boldly for Christ. And he said, in the future, this is why I'm rejoicing, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul looked forward to death because he knew that this reward awaited him, the crown of righteousness. You say, so what happens when a believer dies? Well, absence from the body is presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 Paul says here in our text, verse 23, is that departing is to be with Christ. And even that's better. right? To, to departing, to, to living, it's gain. It's being with Jesus forever. The thief on the cross, Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Not only that, but, but those who die trusting in Jesus will go into the presence of the spirits of the righteous men made perfect. And we, we, there we wait for Jesus to come finally with the second coming and when we are given our resurrected bodies and rewarded for our service to Christ. It will be gain. 
No believer in Jesus Christ will ever be disappointed at His death. But sadly, too many of us live a different way. Instead of believing with Paul that to live is Christ, to die is gain, we often think, well, living is gain, to live is gain, and to die is Christ. Now, that, that second half of that phrase is indeed true. To, to die is Christ. I mean, that's what we absent with the body, is present with the Lord, presence with Jesus, seeing Him, beholding His glory. That is totally true. Because when we die in Christ, we will see Him in all His glory. I'm not denying that. But what, what, what those two things do is kind of change a little bit, right? We think that living is, is the gain. And, and so when the living is the gain, we don't really want to let it go thinking that Christ, yeah, that's good, but it's, it's not like Paul's thinking. He says living is Christ and dying is even better than that. And I think maybe a big reason, by the way, why we have that perspective is because of where we live. We live in America where life is sweet and easy. We live in a land of abundance. Never in the history of the world has there been a people so blessed financially as we've been blessed in America. Life's good for us. And, and you say, well, you know, things are bad. And, and certainly there are problems, all right? There's, you know, I talked about them yes, last week, you know, and just mounting debt that's got to be paid someday. And certainly that's a problem. We're facing a, a change in moral climate of the world, and that is a problem. And we're facing a other things in society which are radically being changed here in, in just our generation. We face problems in the future, yes, but you know what? Where does the world want to come? They want to come to America still. And the life offers more here as difficult as things are, as hard as things are. See, and, and also compared to the poverty of the world, our problems are small. No, we have real problems in our life. Okay, We have personal problems. We have dealing with relational things. We do have financial struggles. I'm not saying that those things aren't there, but I'm saying that compared to the rest of the world, there are many countries in the world where an average day worker earns a dollar a day. So they work, whatever. They earn $300 a year. They could never do what I'm thinking about doing, about flying clear around the world. It would take them all of three years' salary just to save up for the price of the plane ticket if they spent nothing on anything else. From their perspective, a, a plane ticket around the world is like $150,000 because of the poverty. So I just say our, our problems are small. And I just say here in America, so it, it, it makes us easy to think about this life only. And, and it's easy to think of this life as gain and this is all we really want. But church family, I'm telling you, this is not the case. We live in Disneyland, as one pastor said. And you know what? Maybe a good dose of persecution might wake us up. Maybe a good dose of a country going down the hill would wake us up. Maybe a good dose of, of trouble would wake us up. Maybe a good dose of facing financial loss for a moral stand. Right? Same-sex marriage come out. Maybe standing on what God says marriage is. One man with one woman for life. Maybe, maybe standing on that, right, and, and means whatever. You get a court case and you lose business and your business goes away. Maybe that would help you realize that, you know what, there's more to life than what I have here. Maybe some illness in your life or some tragedy would wake you up. 
I just say this, oh, may God give us such blessings. When I think of these things, I think of a man named David Brainerd. In this book, The Life and Diary of of David Brainerd, he was a a humble missionary to the American Indians around 1740s or so, time of Jonathan Edwards. Um, In fact, I think he died in Edwards' home. And the only reason we know about David Brainerd is because Edwards had some kind of platform, caught his diary and published his diary. And so people have read the the diary of David Brainerd and, and his influence have gone far and wide. But he died at age 29, a humble missionary to Indians, and saw some convert, but didn't even face great revival. But what happened was his heart for God was incredible. And he had troubles and, and hardships. In fact, so much so that I remember reading this book and how much he longed for death. And it was kind of like morbid. And I was like, oh, he just longed to die because his life was so difficult. He was a sickly man who had a passion for Jesus and making him known. In fact, I remember him struggling. He's talking about, you think about, what it was like in, say, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Connecticut, right where he's trying to reach out to the American Indians in the wintertime in those days. You maybe have a little cabin, what you will, and during the winter months, all you have is a, a little stove or there a fireplace there that heats your cabin for you, but it's all smoky. And, and, and he struggled with tuberculosis, oftentimes talked about coughing up blood, and so he's He's in there and and with just a smoke, he can't breathe. And so then he goes outside to get the breath of fresh air. And what's outside, kids? It's like, I can breathe, but I'm so cold. And so then he goes back in and he says, oh, I'm warm, but I can't breathe. And it's just a terrible, miserable existence of what he was having. And on top of that, he he had various... We could could read a lot of this. I just want to give you a flavor of one of my passages I, I most love. Thursday, November 22nd. I don't remember what year this was, but he said this. This was after ministering. Came on my, home, my home, way from Rock Siticus to Delaware River. Was very much disordered with cold and pain in my head. In those days, right? You can't just kind of sit down or take a car ride home. You've you got to walk home or ride your horse. He's walking here. He says... Um, About six at night, I lost my way in the wilderness. I mean, they didn't have big signs back then. They just walked through the woods. If you've been out east, you know, the woods are all over the place. And there's uncharted territory. You kind of walk in. He took a wrong turn and he was lost in the woods. Head cold, six at night. He wandered over rocks and mountains, down hideous steeps and through swamps and most dreadful, dangerous places. Indians were around too. And the night being dark so that few stars could be seen, I was greatly exposed. I was much pinched with cold and distress with an extreme pain in my head, attended with sickness in my stomach so that every step I took was distressing to me. I had little hope for several hours together, but that I might lie in the woods all night in this distressed case. But about nine o'clock, I found a house through the abundant goodness of God was kindly entertained. So he just found a house. He knocked on the door and said, could you please take me in? I'm sick and I'm weary and I don't know where I am. And thus, he says, I have frequently been exposed and sometimes lain out the whole night. He's had the experience before where he, he lays out at night because he can't get home. He's lost. I remember one time, I think he, he fell off a horse into the river. The horse kept going and he's cold and wet and soggy as he deals his hardship. And he's a weak man, okay? He's not like a real strong, robust... He's not like Garth Breckenridge, all right? He's, he's a weak man, all right? And... Um, 
He, God has hitherto preserved me. Blessed be His name. And, and catch some of this. This is where His heart just is not on this earth. He says, Such fatigues, hardships as those serve to wean me more from the earth, and I trust will make heaven even the more sweeter. Formerly, when I was thus exposed to cold and rain, I was ready to please myself with the thoughts of enjoying a comfortable house, a warm fire, and other outward comforts. But now these have less place in my heart through the grace of God, and my eye is more to God for comfort. In the world I expect tribulation. It does not now as formerly appear strange to me. I do not in such seasons of difficulty flatter myself that I will be better hereafter, but rather think how much worse it might be and how much greater the trials other children of God have endured and how much greater are yet perhaps others reserved for me. Blessed be God that He makes the thoughts of my journey's end and of my dissolution a great comfort to me. In other words, he's saying things are so hard that when I, I think about when I'm done living, that's the comfort that I have. Under my sharpest trials and scarce ever lets these thoughts be attended with terror or melancholy, but they are attended frequently with great joy. He's got great joy knowing that someday he's going to get out of this earth and out of these trials he's having. And then the next day, Friday, November 23rd, visited a sick man, discoursed and prayed with him, then visited another house where one was dead and laid out. They didn't have funeral homes back then. Someone died in the house. He was probably called there to minister to these people and there was a dead body just right there, soon to be buried. He said, I looked on the corpse and longed that my time might come to depart, that I might be with Christ. And, and that's what his whole diary is about. It's just talking about... In a, some sense, it's morbid introspection, to be sure. Um, but he didn't intend this at all for publication. It was Jonathan Edwards who found it in their house after he died. And he published it to a great blessing of many people. In fact, many missionaries, like when they, they've gone off, off in the olden days, would take their, they'd take their Bible and they'd take David Brainerd. And then Henry Martin, I think that's what he did when he, he went off to uh, Iran and Persia, I think, later to the Muslim world. People have found such great comfort because David Brainerd just talks that way and has living with a, an extra worldliness in mind. Rather than living as gain, he really understood to live as Christ. And you just see how he's depending upon Jesus every moment of the day. That's what it means to live in Christ. And I just say this, trouble and longing for the gain of death go hand in hand. It's no accident that Brainerd was so heavenly minded because he was filled with so many troubles and trials in her life. And maybe we don't share the heart of the Apostle Paul because our life is gain. When our life is Christ, we will see our life, our death as gain. I think many times we have a, a skewed view of heaven, right? We think of this tranquil place with all of our friends. But we have tranquility here and we have friends here. Why do we need to go there for tranquility and friends? But what makes heaven so great? Jesus does. In fact, John Piper said it well. He said this, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. I just pose this to you. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and with all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ weren't there? 
In other words, are you just looking to be with your friends and your family? Or are you looking just to be with Jesus? And if Jesus isn't there, it's not worth it. That's it. If you live, to live as Christ, if you live as Christ, then that will be your perspective and your dying will be gain. Are you ready to die? The Apostle Paul was. And if your life this day is not about Jesus Christ, you have no reason to hope that dying is gain. No reason to hope that dying is gain. You might well be with Hamlet. I don't know. If Christ is not your hope today, you have nothing to look forward to. All filled with uncertainty. But if Christ is your life, when we die, we get Jesus. We get the glories of God. Is that your desire? Is that your heart? Well, as I prepared my message this morning, I uh, um, did what I always do almost every week. And um, this, is, this is my friend. This is my MP3 player. And uh, it, is, it is amazing what I can put on my MP3 player. I have uh, scoured the Internet, looked for people, pastors who preached through the book of Philippians. And um, I, about 20 guys... I've got their whole messages all the way through the book of Philippians. Um, about 650 sermons I have on here. And this is like a third filled up sermon, so it's not like hardly anything. It costs whatever, 50 bucks. And so I've got all, all this stuff. I, I, I looked at it this morning. I think I got 21 days of Philippians sermons on here. Now, so what I, what I do whenever I, like this afternoon or tomorrow morning or... I was a day off. I just, I, just I, I, I put this in my ear. Whenever I'm driving, I just put it in my ear. I'm just constantly listening to people preach about my text. I find it's a great use of my time. I find a great way to study. Um, even apart from books, I can always do that. I'm lying in bed, I'm just thinking with a text in my mind. And um, one thing was interesting when I, I listened to the sermons this week. Um, I listened to maybe five of them or six of them. I, I'm, I'm not listening to all 650 of these messages, just so you know. <laughs> let's, let's, let's put that. I just, I just say, hmm, who do I want to listen to today? Because I got people from England. I got people who from kind of different perspectives, and you know, some are are different. Some are more doctrinal. Some are more heartfelt. And I just say, what do I need today? What kind of stuff do I do? I, some preach bigger passages, and so I just kind of go on a whim and I just pick out who I want. And but I found something interesting is that in almost all of their messages. They almost always gave an illustration of a living example of someone who died well. And uh, I think my favorite one was the illustration that Kent Hughes gave, where he talked about a man in his congregation who was on the older side of life, lived a faithful Christian life his whole life, and was in the hospital, and his end was coming near. And so they called all the family, and all the family was was coming uh, close to him, and were around the hospital bed and and I'm not sure if he had tubes in his mouth why he couldn't talk or whether he just was was so debilitated he couldn't talk but he somehow he could write so he asked for a pen and a piece of paper he signaled to get a pen a piece of paper and what he wrote uh, on, on that sheet of paper was those 12 words for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain and just kind of gave the people, his family members in his room, just what he was looking for, what he was thinking about. And um, then he wrote, and uh, Kent Hughes said it took him five minutes to write, Alleluia. And I think that's the last communication he had with his family before he passed away. But, but what a, a good perspective 
What an encouraging perspective. And so I, I was thinking, have I, have I seen something like that? And the, the closest I've seen was uh, uh, about 11 years ago. I was with Rich Garden and with his family. And uh, it was when Teresa uh, was dying of breast cancer. She was rushed to St. Anthony's Hospital. And, and we were there in the waiting room. And the emergency room doctor came in. And, and these, I, just, I, I pulled these from my notes. This is, this is what I, I preached at her funeral message 11 years ago. Um, the doctor began with these words. As you probably guessed, things didn't go very well. He described how she was transported to the hospital, how CPR was performed, how IV was started, and how some medicines were given her to help. And he told her when he arrived, she arrived at the hospital, it had been 25 minutes without any heartbeat. And um, then the, the doctor said compassionately, So I'm sure you're aware, the outcome of 25 minutes with little or no heartbeat is not encouraging. The chance of survival is not very good. In fact, it's 0%. And when she arrived at the hospital, I pronounced her DOA. I said, I'm sorry for the bad news. And then he said, are there any questions? And Alec, bless his heart, Alec, Rich's son, said, but doctor, things did go well. She went to heaven to be forever with the Lord, for she died faithful in Christ. That was Teresa's testimony. And I, I'm just thinking about this. What? When the day comes that you die, are your kids going to be able to give a similar testimony about the way that you died? Things went well because he or she was faithful until the end. Died faithful in Christ. They'll forever be with the Lord. You know what? In 50 years, we'll all be there. Right, Rich? We'll be there. It didn't matter that she was taken 11 years ago and that you lived to 99 years old like your dad. In eternity, it will, it will be okay. But I'm just asking you will, you, will your children be able to give a similar testimony? And I say this, the only way that they will be able to do that is if you today have your life that to live is Christ. It's the only way. To live as Christ is the only way to get your life, your death to be gained. I just say this, may Jesus be your life. Well, let's pray. Father, we would pray these words be true to us. Help us, O oh Lord, God, to so live with Christ as the object of our delight and pleasure. Uh, that we would long to die in a, in a right way. God, because of the glories that await us, we trust that you will help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now before we finish, uh, I thought um, I'd like to have Ryan McDowell come. He's been telling me a little about his dad, and um, I just wanted him to share a little about the testimony of his dad's passing a couple years ago, what they were doing as a family, because uh, he was a faithful man. So, go ahead, Paul. Ryan. Um, a little nervous, so my dad uh, was an Assemblies of God minister for 13 years of my life. I say that because I don't know how long he was a minister prior to me. <laughs> so, um, and he didn't do that 
until he passed. Uh, he did that for 13 years of my life, and then at the, towards the end, he was a manager for Van Gelder's bus company in Janesville. Um, and, you know, everybody likes to think that everybody goes to heaven. It's comforting when a relative or a person of, that you care about dies that says that they went to heaven. But the real, real question is, were they a Christian or, or were they not? And I think that if we take his whole life as a whole and his testimony that he lived, I can with assurance say that he was a Christian and therefore I have comfort uh, in his death that he went to be with Christ. In his sickness, um, he was diagnosed with lupus at first and there was a struggle with what he actually had and, and how they were medicating him and in the end it turned into leukemia is what he ended up uh, fighting and battling and um, he didn't just give up and die. He actually he, he believed God and trusted God that he would heal him and prayed for that healing to come. Um, but there was an assurance that he had that even if that didn't turn out the way that uh, we were hoping and praying for, that there was a better hope ahead of him. Um, in just a moment, I'm going to play, show a short clip um, before he went into the hospital, we had a church event in April of 2009 out in the open in Janesville um, when we actually were able to videotape him uh, doing what he does best, and that is singing. Um, as a minister, he uh, led worship for many years in the church, and um, so we, we actually got this video of him, and how we use it is, on October 24th was his birthday. So this week we actually got to put it in the DVD player and look at it because my children don't know who he is. And I got to introduce and say, hey, this is your papa. This is what he does. This is, this is who he is. If you want to go ahead and play the... And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. had to go to UW-Madison for an appointment and we walked in uh, for the update with the doctor and they said don't leave you need to be admitted and if you want a chance at fighting this so it was it was a crazy uh, visit where they tell you 
Um, it's good to see you. Don't leave. We need to admit you. Um, in his time in the hospital, he passed the time by writing letters to all of the, his family members. He has several brothers and sisters and my mom. And he also wrote letters to his grandkids individually. And he wrote a letter to me as well. And as I, you know, I, I get to see this each year and, and we play it once a year so not to wear it out. But uh, just the words of um, victory in Jesus where he, I heard about a mansion, I heard about the streets of gold, I heard about the angels singing. And I, I think of another song in the lyrics, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. It says, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. His whole life he's been hearing about uh, the streets of gold and the mansion and being with Christ. And now um, it has become a reality because we do. We really have a real God with a real gospel and a real hope in that one day we will be with him. So I just uh, this is how I know uh, his attitude in, in the time that uh, he had left. He said, Ryan... As I told Mason, Mason is my, my, my son, obviously we do not know how this leukemia thing is going to play out. There should be no doubt in your mind my faith in God and the promise in the Word. I have seen my share of genuine miracles in my lifetime. I have also seen Christians who have not received their healing this side of heaven. I am prepared for either way. Sometimes God allows his saints to come on home with the idea uh, being that the memorial service touches dozens of lives of people that may not have been otherwise. So if that happens, don't despair. Just plan on giving the good news to as many as possible. And just as a reflection of for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Um, and... Um, it is it's 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 hard it's not easy god gave us love he gave us relationships um you know i mean he gave us compassion so i mean it's not wrong to grieve or to feel a sense of loss but uh, never despair thank you